The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Clinical trials help to determine whether new and existing medicines and medical practices are safe and effective in treating particular diseases and conditions. And even though medicines are tested thoroughly in laboratories, human clinical trials assist doctors to better understand optimal dosages and if new medicines being offered are actually any better than the older ones. Today I speak with Professor Steve Webb, an intensivist and Director of Clinical Trials at St John of God Hospital in Subiaco, so we can learn more about clinical trials. What is a clinical trial? A clinical trial is one way of receiving treatment. Um, It's probably not the most common way of receiving treatment, um, but it's different to most ways of receiving treatment because in a randomised controlled trial, the treatment that a patient receives is going to be determined by random allocation by the trial, and then treatment will be delivered by the protocol that's specified uh, by the trial. So what's involved in a clinical trial? Um, from the perspective of a patient? Of a patient, yes. Yeah. Um, well, there's, in fact, probably a good place to start is well before the first patient uh, arrives uh, into yeah. a clinical trial, which is that all trials um, are guided by uh, a document uh, mm-hmm. that outlines many aspects of uh, why the trial is going to be conducted, what the trial uh, is going to test, uh, what uh, measurements uh, will be taken uh, of the patient uh, during the trial, um, and how the trial will be analysed from a statistical perspective. And do they have to be passed by an ethical committee and things like that prior to just... You know, you can't just go, oh, I'm going to conduct a clinical trial in this. You most certainly can't. So there's actually wonderful protections uh, for um, patients who are willing to uh, volunteer uh, and be um, a part of a trial. Indeed, it's often safer to be in a trial because the treatment is specified by a protocol which means it's more likely to be delivered uh, as is uh, appropriate. And it also has been through um, a review process, not just an ethics review process, um, but a review process uh, by the investigators um, uh, and uh, whoever is uh, sponsoring the clinical trial to make sure that it has very high standards um, of clinical as well as scientific integrity. So how much work goes on even before you would get to the point of recruiting patients for instance? Um, That's an interesting question um, because of one of my research interests, which is to try and study um, in a clinical trial patients who are infected with a pandemic uh, uh, infection. And pandemics turn up when you don't expect them to. And so there's a particular challenge associated with how quickly you could put together uh, a clinical trial. Uh, So I was involved in um, observational studies, not trials, in the 2009 swine flu uh, pandemic. And we thought about whether or not we could uh, put a a trial together. And the pandemic had come and gone by the time uh, we even uh, started to put pen to paper. Mm. So the lead, t- the minimum lead time is really six to 12 months uh, to Before put a Before you even get to the point where you're recruiting a patient. Correct. And it can often be longer. 
I do mainly, in, well, entirely, what's referred to as investigator-initiated clinical trials, um, which means it's not a company with a new product that's looking to evaluate uh, something. And we get grants uh, from the government, from the National Health and Medical Research Council. Mm. And we always say if you, uh, if you get the grant announcement in uh, November, which is when they come out, if you've recruited the first patient by Christmas the following year, you've done incredibly well. So there's a lot of work involved. There is. I've been involved in trials where it's been two and a half, three years from funding announcement before the first patient's recruited. So you have to have a lot of patients to work in clinical trials by the sound of it. Uh, patients with both uh, spellings. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> correct. So in terms of what are the different types of clinical trials out there? Yeah. So um, there are many different ways of uh, drawing distinction amongst different types of clinical trials, but probably um, a really important one to start with is the, uh, is the nature of the interventions that are being tested within a trial. So there's a major distinction between trials that are of an experimental therapy mm. uh, where there's some form of novel um, or uh, innovative therapy that is often only available to patients in a trial and we'll, we'll refer to that as, as, as novel or experimental uh, trials. Would the, an example be like if a new um, drug was coming on, a new Correct. treatment for cancer, a particular yeah. cancer? or So, so there's been um, a, a wave of ex incredibly exciting new cancer therapies that are just paradigm shifting in terms of uh, previously these were diseases that were largely untreatable with dreadful outcomes for patients. And as a consequence of amazing science that's happened in laboratories, it's led to the um, identification of new treatments. And the first time those treatments were evaluated um, in patients, it was obviously a trial of an innovative or experimental therapy. The other type of trial is what's referred to as comparative effectiveness. And what that means is that there's um, two or more interventions, um, drugs or surgical procedures, um, that are part of routine standard care already. Clinicians are using both options. Patients are receiving both options. And both options are known or believed to be safe and effective. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in standard care. Mm. But the research has never been done to know which option is best. And they're an important type of trial because um, they generate really useful evidence for um, uh, clinicians to provide better treatments for patients in the future. But there's obviously much less potential advantage to a participant for being in a comparative effectiveness trial because they're just getting the sort of treatments that they would have otherwise got in routine care. Whereas in a trial of a novel or innovative um, uh, treatment, it might be something which is incredibly effective and makes a massive difference to the patient's life. Mm. In that type of trial, though, there's much more uncertainty about whether there's going to be benefit and it needs to be acknowledged in the information that's provided to potential patients that there may be a risk of harm. There's no guarantee of benefit. Whereas in a comparative effectiveness trial, the risks are really not much more than, us, than are associated with receiving the treatment, the same treatment in standard care, 
but there are aspects uh, like the um, the attention to detail that occurs in a protocol and the additional um, evaluation and assessment of a patient as they progress that probably mean there's still advantages for patients um, being willing to volunteer in comparative effectiveness trials, not just out of a sense of altruism to improve outcomes for uh, future patients. And are there different phases of trials? So, for instance... Um I'm just assuming do they go from one phase to a particular phase before it even gets to being trialled in a human being? Um, so there are um, different phases of trials, but they largely refer um, uh, only to the um, commencement of trials in humans. Phase one trials are typically the first time a new drug is administered to uh, volunteers um, or patients. And that's mainly done to assess um, the safety and uh, take measurements of the blood uh, in, uh, take measurements of the drug uh, in blood or in other tissues. Um, some treatments can't be given to volunteers. They're only appropriate to be given to patients with the disease. Mm. And so particularly with these new cancer treatments that have come through in the last uh, five years or so, often the very first evaluation of the treatment, uh, the first in man, has been first in patient. So is what we're hearing sometimes on those news is about the first phase of the trial? So often what we hear on the news is what's referred to as preclinical research, which is about some sort of discovery, often incredibly important, mm. which might lead to a drug and hasn't yet led to a drug, or the development of a drug that is just starting to undergo tests in a test tube uh, or in experimental animals and hasn't even yet been administered uh, to patients. So it's something to keep in mind. It is, but it's often very forward-looking. True. So second phase? Yeah. So, so after phase one, if it passes at phase one, it goes into what's called phase two, which is the first time that you generally see randomization of patients. And part of the scientific integrity of clinical trials is ensuring that they are designed in such a way that the results can be interpreted. And for a new drug, that means some patients, typically half, get the active drug and half typically get uh, a placebo, an inactive um, treatment, um, and the, neither, neither the patients nor the researchers or the people uh, providing um, treatment um, know which treatment uh, the patient is on. And that's necessary to be able to interpret the results of the experiment. At phase two, the goal is mainly to determine if uh, the treatment is having some sort of uh, clinical or biological activity that is likely to be associated with benefit and make a further assessment of the safety profile of the drug and make sure that it's reasonable to proceed to phase three, which is where you start to see much larger numbers of patients uh, being um, randomised within the trial. And with the endpoint, the outcome measure that's been set for the trial being something important to a patient's health. So something that's related to one or more of how a patient feels, functions or survives, which are the, 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 car the three cardinal experiences mm. that are important to patients and should be the standard that is being set by regulators 
to determine that a, uh, a new treatment is appropriate um, uh, for introduction into practice. There are some exceptions to that. When p diseases are very, very rare, it may be necessary to use um, slightly different designs. Um, but where um, uh, diseases are very rare, if the treatment effect is, is very large and really quite um, substantial, then it's quite reasonable to interpret that the um, uh, treatment effect has arisen uh, because of uh, the treatment. In a lot of diseases, doctors and researchers are now looking for the size of treatment effect, which is only small or moderate, and a randomised controlled trial is the only scientific method available at the moment that can validly identify um, small and moderate size treatment effects, which are still important, still very, very important uh, to improving outcomes, particularly for diseases where there's millions and millions and millions of people um, having um, uh, uh, that disease. There's about 20 million people a year globally who'll have a heart attack. Yes. And so dropping mortality for patients with heart attack from around 1 or 1.5% where it exists at the moment, say to half a percent, is a massive number of lives. Yeah, and I think you said key words like randomised trials. So when we're Googling and doing our own research, which is great that we have access now to all these, we should be looking for those sort of key words like randomised trial and... Correct. Um, there's a lot of medical literature. Mm. <laughs> there's way more medical literature than anyone can uh, cope with. Quite a lot of the literature might, is referred to as observational studies. So these are studies which will take a cohort, a group of patients, and evaluate what treatments they've been exposed to in routine practice, and then use statistical approaches to try and show association between a particular treatment approach and an improved outcome. They, these are important studies, but mainly because they might identify treatments uh, to, to generate a hypothesis that this treatment is uh, um, preferable. The problem with observational studies is that they suffer from a thing which is called confounding, which is that there may be other factors associated with receiving a particular treatment like maybe being treated by a better doctor, which are responsible for the improvement in outcome and not the uh, treatment exposure. And this is overcome in randomised controlled trials by virtue of randomisation. So when a patient is randomised to treatment A and a patient is randomised to treatment B, and treatment B might be a placebo, all the factors like age and coexisting illnesses um, and whether you've got a good doctor or a not such a good uh, doctor are evenly balanced between mm -hmm. those two groups, which means that at the end, when the results of the trial can be analysed, any difference in outcome measures can be validly attributed to the treatment assignment that was provided for the patient. And all of those extraneous factors are, um, uh, are dealt with by being balanced between the two groups as a consequence of the randomization. Mm. Some people feel uncomfortable about being randomized. It feels a bit like being a guinea pig. Mm. But um, 
it's important um, that people who conduct clinical trials and doctors who um, might refer patients uh, to clinical trials um, explain randomization because it is essential to being able to interpret the results of the trial appropriately. And the risks and benefits associated with a trial um, should be explained um, uh, in the context of uh, getting back to something we talked about earlier, whether the trial is offering access to an innovative therapy that's not otherwise available, but about which little is known, and so potential for benefit, but also for potential for harm exists, versus a comparative effectiveness trial where the risks of participation are little different to the risks of receiving the treatment as part of uh, routine care. So what makes you passionate about clinical <laughs> trials? Because this is what you've been doing a long time and you've won awards in this area. So what is, why are you so passionate about clinical trials and why should we be so passionate about clinical trials? Uh, so I'm passionate about improving patient outcomes. And um, I spend half of my life um, as a doc uh, treating patients, and I love that aspect uh, of my life. But no matter how many patients I see, no matter how long I work for, there's always going to be a limit to how many patients I can look after myself. As a researcher, I can generate evidence applied by other doctors in this country, in other countries, all over the world. And so research is a um, an effect amplifier. It's a way of me being able to do something which helps way more patients mm. than I can ever look after uh, in my own life. It's a massive privilege uh, to be able to do that. Um, but um, if one's interested in um, how much um, impact uh, you can have on improving patient outcomes, then there's a limit to what can be achieved as an individual clinician, but almost no limit to what can be achieved uh, as a researcher. And I suppose if we want better outcomes for patients, for ourselves, when we're suffering disease, it's just not going to happen without clinical research. C correct. It's often not widely understood, but there's a long list of treatments um, adopted into clinical practice in good faith and for not unreasonable reasons, which when people finally got around to doing high quality clinical trials, actually demonstrated that those treatments were harmful. Mm. And it comes as a surprise to many people that a lot of the clinical decisions, a lot of the, tre the treatments that people receive, um, it's not actually known from clinical trials which is the best option, and sometimes even whether or not the treatment is effective or the best way of delivering the treatment. So just on a tangent uh, as an example there, we talked about these new incredibly effective uh, cancer treatments that have come through. They're all developed by different companies, not all, but many of them mm. by different companies. So the companies appropriately do a trial of their drug versus placebo, but it leaves clinicians uncertain, despite evidence of effectiveness of the treatment, about other aspects. Like, if I combine company A's drug with company B's drug, do I get even better outcomes? And neither company A nor company B have a great incentive to cooperate to do those trials. Sometimes they do. 
And also, some of these treatments come with uh, adverse effects. Um, um, sometimes the uh, adverse effects can even um, uh, be more significant than the disease. Mm. And maybe the adverse effects um, can be managed by reducing the duration of the course of treatment. But a lot of the new cancer treatments have been put into trials without a strong rationale for two years of treatment. And yet, biologically, it's entirely possible that six or 12 months of treatment might be just as effective. And so um, it falls to investigator-initiated trials to conduct these trials like what is the optimal combination or what is the optimal sequence mm -hmm. of treatments that are licensed and available, or maybe six months is just as good as two years without the side effects. What about placebo? They do say um, a percentage of outcomes, you know, there's a placebo effect. Yeah. Is that true? There is a placebo effect, but it depends on the disease. So... Um, what is it exactly? So a placebo is typically an inert substance uh, like um, um, sodium chloride, mm -hmm. salt. Um, uh, um, I've been in a trial where placebo was air. <laughs> Stop it. And, and so it was an empty vial yeah. with no powder in it to which the, the blinded research staff injected um, a solution of salt and water and then mixed it all up. And when they withdrew it from the opaque uh, vial, they didn't know if it was active drug or, um, or air. Wow. And is it true that sometimes there's um, people will benefit from being on placebo? There's a certain yeah. amount of it that... So, so it depends on the disease um, and its biology. Um, for someone with advanced cancer, um, a placebo is going to have no impact on the course of that disease. And any difference in outcome can be appropriately attributed to the active uh, treatment that some of the patients will have received. Now, for other things which are more related to symptoms mm. and perception, placebo is incredibly important. And where it's particularly important is in trials of surgical procedures mm. in which the outcome of interest is whether or not there's um, improvement in function and relief of pain. So there are people in this country at the moment um, doing clinical trials of um, uh, surgical procedures like back and knee operations where the um, um, half the patients get the planned operation and half get a cut You're and an anaesthetic really, and don't know whether or not they've actually had the procedure. And so, that's to prove what? And so that's um, the, the placebo is a sham procedure and it's incredibly important to understand um, mainly from a health economic perspective mm. whether or not the benefit that follows the operation is from the operation or from the belief that you've had an operation. But there are m tens, hundreds of millions of dollars a year spent by insurers and the government mm. on these procedures for which, sadly, there is legitimate uncertainty about whether they are actually effective. And the only way to evaluate that question, to determine if it's a procedure that should still be subsidised uh, by the government, is to do exactly these types of trials. And I think as a taxpayer, we all should be 
um, interested in the health economics of yeah. drugs and whether they get PBS listed and they have to go through clinical trials, don't they? They, 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 they do. So um, that, that's um, um, a good starting point for perhaps just understanding a little bit more about what's in it for the patient to participate yeah. in a trial. Now, where it's a novel or innovative therapy that's only available in the trial and might be a breakthrough, might not be, mm. um, understanding that you're, you've got a 50-50 chance of getting access to something that might help and is not available in any other way, that's an important context uh, of understanding. In comparative effectiveness trials, equally important to understand that um, there may be no direct benefit from participation that is different from just having the same treatments in routine practice, but also understanding that all treatments that we give now where we know their effectiveness and everything that needs to be known about how to give that treatment can only occur because we're standing on the shoulders of participants in previous trials who've generated that evidence base and allows the patient in front of us to receive uh, best care. So for comparative effectiveness, there's much less that's potentially in it for the patient, but you're making a decision that's going to help many, many patients um, in future years. Yeah, that's true. And how did someone find out about clinical trials? Well, I guess it might also be different for these two types of trials that we keep coming back to of investigator-initiated comparative effectiveness trials compared to often commercially sponsored trials of innovative uh, therapies. Um, usually patient motivation to find out about trials is where there's desperate unmet need where perhaps a trial is going to provide access uh, to a, um, a breakthrough treatment that they wouldn't otherwise uh, have access to. The first thing to do is to um, ask the treating doctor what clinical trials might be available uh, for my disease, particularly where it's a, um, uh, a disease where there's a uh, not great treatments available. So uh, ask the specialist so, they're seeing? So, so ask the specialist uh, that you're seeing. There are other places that you can go searching, uh, though. Um, there's um, There are websites which are clinical trial registration uh, websites where you can search by disease. The best of those is a place called clintrials.gov which is uh, a United States-based um, uh, trial registration site, but it will list all the trials happening all around the world um, for a particular disease. And I, I certainly am aware of patients who have travelled sometimes, have uh, had the means to do so, which is not necessarily universal, but have travelled to be a participant in a trial and get access um, to a, a novel therapy. There's also a, um, uh, a website and an app that's available in Australia called ClinTrial Refer. And that's um, a not complete list of the clinical trials that are available uh, in Australia, but I think it is publicly accessible, not just accessible uh, to uh, clinicians. And again, you can search by disease to find the location 
and the site investigator, the doctor that's running the trial um, at a different site. And that can give people who are looking for um, a novel or innovative therapy some idea of the trials that are available. Now, sadly, there are many diseases where there are just not breakthroughs occurring. And when there's no breakthroughs to test, then there are no innovative clinical trials. So there's no guarantee that there's going to be a clinical trial that's suitable for every person who has unmet need. But there are still many diseases that are um, uh, in need of additional participants um, for clinical trials that, um, that, uh, that offer that. Sometimes, um, unfortunately, it can be necessary to change specialist to get access um, uh, um, to, a, to a new treatment. But there are ways of um, the original specialist um, and the specialist overseeing the trial to liaise and make sure that a, um, there's good continuity of care and that the patient doesn't have to fully leave the specialist um, that they're happy with. Yeah, it sounds interesting and a good idea. And then what's involved? So if you've gone to the specialist, they've put forward and let you know about a trial, Yep. that might be of interest to the patient. What would then they? What would be sort of a normal procedure moving? You know, normal process of that. Yeah. So often the first stage is to um, uh, go through a process to work out whether or not the trial is suitable for this particular patient. All trials have to have what is known as inclusion and exclusion criteria, and they're necessary because. When the trial results come out, future clinicians will know that the results of the trial apply to patients who meet those criteria. So the entry criteria for the trial are absolutely essential to effective implementation. And the trial entry criteria um, uh, will, as the first step, be evaluated for each individual who might be eligible for the trial in what's referred to as a screening uh, stage. And unfortunately, there are many patients that have the disease of interest, but they don't meet um, all of the inclusion and exclusion uh, criteria necessary to be able to access uh, the trial. But ha assuming someone does meet the entry criteria, then the next phase is usually more detailed discussion, um, provision of more detailed information about the trial, and then the opportunity for the patient to determine whether or not they want to agree to be part of the trial. And what are some key questions that they might be asking in those preliminary um, meetings? Yeah, so um, I would strongly recommend that people ask the question, is this a trial that's about access to an innovative therapy or is it a comparative effectiveness uh, trial? Because that sort of sets out a framework uh, to better understand um, uh, risks and benefits. For a trial that's about an innovative therapy, it's um, really hard, sometimes even for clinicians, let alone patients, to make an informed judgment about whether this is really a treatment that might be a breakthrough and whether or not there are um, uh, really quite substantial risks um, uh, of participation. Your treating clinician is the best person to try and uh, walk you through uh, those questions. People will very appropriately 
uh, um, do online searches and I would encourage people to understand as much about their disease and as much about the quality of evidence that is um, leading to uh, usually a company offering this particular treatment uh, within a clinical trial. It's not always the case, but trials that are being run by very big, well-known pharmaceutical companies are probably more likely to offer benefit because they're the companies with the biggest research and development budgets and also the companies that are very sophisticated in forming um, a judgment about whether a particular drug should go into clinical trials um, um, or not. Smaller companies, they might only have one drug, so they're pretty incentivized to get it into a clinical trial. That's not a big factor, but it's one to take into account. And beyond that, it's really very specialised knowledge. It's about whether the studies in which experimental animals have used a model of disease that's really applicable to, to this trial. Um, that's for early phase trials. For late phase trials, a phase three trial that we talked about earlier, knowing the results of the phase two trial, was it a, was it a slam dunk, mm. big treatment effects? in the phase two trial, in which case definitely go in the phase three trial, or was it a phase two trial where the effectiveness looked pretty marginal and maybe there's a little bit of benefit and maybe there's not, and they're the sorts of trials to maybe just be a little bit more cautious about. And would participants or potential participants be able to get hold of sometimes that information or be able to read the phase two trial? Often, but not always. Sometimes um, companies... Um, will have done a phase two trial without necessarily publishing the results before they've proceeded to a phase three trial um, because they would regard those results as being commercial in confidence. Mm. But um, um, one of the, we talked about trial registration sites earlier. One of the things which is important about trial registration sites is that at least in Australia and in many other countries in the world, companies and investigators are not allowed to do a trial unless it's registered. What that means is it serves as a check to make sure that all trials that are being conducted actually have their results reported. So if you're being approached about a phase three trial, there must have been phase two trials. If you can't find them published in the medical literature, then have a look on the trial registration sites where sometimes there'll be a little bit of information about the results and if it's been a long time since the trial was completed, um, that can be interpreted in a variety of different ways, but it's a little bit of a red flag that the company, um, uh, if it's a company, hasn't put the results out into the public domain. And are they safe, clinical trials? Because it's probably one of the underlying reasons why people would hesitate. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the answer to that is complicated. Mm. Where it's a novel treatment and we know little or nothing about the treatment, it is true that there's a risk that the treatment is ineffective and no better than placebo. There's also a risk that the treatment might have adverse effects that are not yet understood and on balance could be harmful. So that should all be explained and understood before an individual decides whether or not to um, uh, participate in a trial.
For a comparative effectiveness trial, the risks are really quite minimal. Um, these are treatments that are licensed, available, and the sort of treatment that a patient would have received if they chose not to be in a trial. And if it's a trial of a novel therapy, there's a group called the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, and they will look at the results of the trial progressively as the trial um, uh, recruits uh, participants, and if they are seeing signals of significant harm, they're empowered to stop the trial there and then. So there are many ways in which the safety of participants is protected, but as I said, there are still no guarantees um, that all trials are always safe, but neither is clinical practice safe, always. And if someone was in a clinical trial and they were feeling that they were getting adverse events and not comfortable, yep. can they withdraw? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fundamental um, principle of all clinical trials that the people who are participating are doing so voluntarily and that they can uh, withdraw uh, at any time for any reason and there's a guarantee that's provided that the decision to withdraw will have no effect on the quality of treatment uh, that is um, provided on an ongoing basis. And so why are clinical trials so important? I think we sort of talked about it initially, but what would be something that really sticks in your mind? I mean, I suppose vaccines come to mind <laughs> with myself, but what sort of stands out for you? Um, it's an interesting question, uh, Danae. Some of the things about which we are most convinced of their effectiveness, um, like antibiotics and to some extent the early vaccines, were all developed um, so long ago that they didn't actually go into clinical trials because clinical trials didn't exist when penicillin was invented um, in the 1940s. I'm fond of saying to um, students and other investigators, it wouldn't take us long in a clinical trial to demonstrate that penicillin is incredibly effective for pneumococcal uh, pneumonia. Where treatment effects are very big, clinician, just observation by clinicians is enough to know with confidence uh, that a treatment is, uh, effectiveness, is, is effective. Clinical trials are much more about um, new treatments or where there might be small or moderate uh, size differences uh, between um, uh, existing um, uh, treatments. One of the things which stands out for me is how we've managed as clinicians to get ourselves into a situation where so much of what we do, we are extrapolating from other clinical trials or um, looking at the mechanism of a drug and applying it in principle to the mechanism of a disease and saying, oh, we think this is probably going to help, and we don't know. And is that when you get terms of we're following best practice? When they say best <clears throat> practice, is that based on clinical trial evidence? Best practice is a, um, a, a term that means um, slightly different things to slightly different uh, people. Another way of uh, considering this is um, looking at the term um, guidelines. So guidelines are um, uh, recommendations developed by experts who have often gone through a very rigorous process to evaluate um, all of the existing clinical trials and other evidence uh, that exists um, and make recommendations. 
I look after patients with a disease called severe sepsis, which means that they've got um, an infection that's causing failure of multiple organ systems. In the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, um, the most uh, previous version, um, most prior to the current version, I haven't worked out the number for the current version, I'm sorry, there's 113 recommendations, which gives you, because patients will typically receive as many as 20 or 30 or 40 different components of therapy uh, to, to try and save their life. Of those 113 recommendations, 13 are supported by high quality clinical trials and the rest are recommendations based on um, best guesses extrapolating from non-randomised controlled trial evidence. But one of them is to give antibiotics. And to circle back, there's no way we're going to do a placebo-controlled trial of antibiotics because we're all convinced that they work. It's just that they came into practice before randomised controlled trials uh, um, were widespread. So those of us who do clinical trials are aware of the large unmet need for better evidence, but it doesn't extend to saying, look, we should do randomised controlled trials of parachutes for people jumping out of planes. I think there are a lot of things in medicine that are parachutes and we know that they work and we're not looking to do trials of those. So how do clinical trials benefit patients? So if, if there was a clinical trial that a participant was going, well, what's in it for me? Yep. What would you say to them? So I think um, circling back to these two different types of trials, it really is different depending um, on the type of trial. For a trial of an innovator for experimental therapy, there's really something that's directly in it for the patient benefit. But it's a 50-50 chance as whether you get access to that treatment. Acknowledging that before the trial, it's not known really whether or not that treatment is going to offer any substantial advantage. The other type of trial, the comparative effectiveness trials, there's much less that's in it for the patient because all of the things that are tested in comparative effectiveness are available in routine care. But that patient who participates in a comparative effectiveness trial is um, not placing themselves at substantial risk because the treatments were all known or believed to be effective. But they're generating evidence to really help future patients. And they should also, I think, reflect a little that the treatments that they're receiving now that are known to be effective are because people have volunteered previously to be in clinical trials. And it's sort of a rolling chain. If every cohort of patients as they come through are willing to participate in trials, we're making an investment in better treatments for future patients. But also during the pr trial process, they get a lot of care? Correct. Yeah. So um, uh, um, how they will be uh, treated and managed is set out in the trial protocol. And that often ensures that um, uh, the meticulousness of care is maintained, which can't always be quite guaranteed to be the case uh, in routine practice. And the degree of vigilance and evaluation of the patient that occurs is often much greater in a clinical trial, which serves to provide um, better information to um, fine tune 
and make sure that the patient is getting across a whole range of issues the best possible treatment. So to end today's interview, what are some key messages that we should take away from clinical trials, what they're about and what we can what we should know about them as patients? Yeah, so a couple of things immediately come to mind. Um, uh, clinical trials are a really valuable way of patients getting access uh, to novel and innovative therapies that wouldn't uh, otherwise uh, be available. Um, that surprisingly, um, quite a significant proportion of the medical treatments uh, that are, are around haven't been through clinical trials to know which is um, uh, the best trial. Um, that um, uh, safety um, is paramount. Uh, in, in, in clinical trials um, and that all of the associated observation and vigilance that occurs uh, within a trial um, provides substantial reassurance about uh, being in a trial um, and that um, patients um, uh, who are receiving treatments now are benefiting from the volunteer um, um, uh, altruism of previous patients and should reflect on that. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today on Meditalk. Thanks, Danae. A big thank you to Professor Webb for sharing his knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And to learn more about Professor Webb, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.